to the preaching and teaching ministry of Marion Oaks Assembly of God in Ocala, Florida. We invite you to open your Bible as we join Pastor Tim McIntyre for today's message for Bible study. So tonight we continue our Bible study series on answering tough questions. And the title of tonight is, Are There Errors in the Bible? Part 2. My original plan is that we would cover this topic in two sessions. It's going to take three, maybe four, depending on how we move tonight. But that's okay. The reason it's taking it longer is because we've been having some good discussion. And I got a lot of great feedback from the last lesson. Uh, the very first lesson was, can we trust the Bible? We talked about that in general. Why can we trust the Bible? How can we know that it's inspired by God? And then last week, the second lesson was, are there errors in the Bible? Part one, and we talked about errors in content. And that was supposed to be the first half, but it ended up being the whole lesson. And what we dealt with that, in case you weren't here, is how can we know that what's in the Bible is what God wanted in the Bible? There's 66 books, 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New um, how can we know that there aren't some other books that should have been in there or that there might be some books in there that God really didn't want in there? And if you missed that, you can listen to that online uh, on our website or our podcast, all right? So tonight we're going to do Are There Errors in the Bible? Part 2. There are three more categories I want to deal with. I've prepared note sheets so we can deal with two of them tonight if we get that far. If not, we'll just deal with the first one. But we're definitely tonight going to jump in with possible errors in transmission. Not about talking about a car's transmission, but transmitting the message. And the question basically is, can we be sure the manuscripts were copied accurately? That's what we're going to jump right into in just a moment. The second part, if we get to it tonight, if not, we'll do it next week, is errors in facts. Is the Bible accurate compared to science, history, and archaeology? And then the last one, which we definitely won't get to tonight, um, but hopefully next week, is errors in consistency, and that is, does the Bible contradict itself? Because a lot of times people say, you know, you can't trust the Bible. It's so full of contradictions. But if you ask them to name one, a lot of times they can't. But there are a lot of things that seem to be contradictions, and that's what we're going to deal with hopefully next week. So tonight, for sure, errors in transmission. Can we be sure the manuscripts were copied accurately? And maybe... Errors and facts, is the Bible accurate compared to science, history, and archaeology? So let's jump right in with errors in transmission. Can we be sure the manuscripts were copied accurately? A couple of other thoughts real quick. Um, each of these topics is a big topic. Books and books and books have been written about it, so this is going to be kind of an overview all right, And also, because of the nature of it, I'm going to be doing more of the talking than I usually do, although I'll take any questions or comments as we go along. So, can we be sure the manuscripts were copied accurately? The claim is, and this claim is out there uh, all over the place, um, the Muslims in particular make this claim as a part of their religion about Christians and the Bible. And that is, yes, you've got a Bible. And even if you believe that the original manuscripts, which we don't have any of the original manuscripts, okay, couldn't survive. We don't have any of the original. We don't have the original manuscript of anything from Genesis all the way through Revelation. All right, the original copy that was written by the author. Okay, even if those were inspired by God and they are perfect, 
There's no way that you can say that's true of the Bibles we have today because for the New Testament, almost 2,000 years worth, and for much of the Old Testament, it's been even longer, 2,500 years or longer, those have been copied. And those copies have been copied, and they've been copied, and they've been copied. And, they've, and surely through history, there have been so many mistakes, so many things that have probably crept in that weren't there originally, and things that were dropped out. I think the word that um, many people like to use is that the, the text that we have has been so corrupted, we can't have any kind of confidence that what we actually have printed in our Bibles is very accurate compared to whatever was originally written by the original authors that God used to write his words, okay? You perhaps have heard that before. Without, without having jumped into it yet, how would you respond to that? How would you respond to the, how, how would you respond to someone who would come to say, well, how can you have such faith in your Bible that it's really what God wanted to be there when the books have been copied so many times and there's so many, so much opportunity that, uh, corruption has taken place? Vita. Well, I would agree with everything you said. God does not lie. God does not change. And he gave his word. But again, the word when he gave it was thousands of years ago in between people who are not perfect. You know, we can say that the people God used to write his word down were inspired. But there's nothing that says that the people who copied it were inspired. Because the the Bible doesn't talk about the people who copied it. So I agree with everything you said, but yet the person could still say, well, that still doesn't say how... We ended up with it, you know, and it's good enough. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so that is really good. Not based on a scripture that says so, because there isn't one, but based on scriptural principles. And you quoted several verses. You know, one that God said his word would not return void, and he would establish his word. Jesus said the Holy Spirit would guide and lead, and he certainly was involved. We talked about that uh, last week in the inspiration process, and that if God would go to all that trouble to guide and inspire God's his word, surely he would be involved in the process of copying to make sure that it is kept through history. So, again, not based on a scripture that you can write, uh, read, and it says, well, God did this because it doesn't say that, but based on the character of God and what he did in instituting his word and inspiring his word and seeing that carried out throughout history. That's a, that's a good, good, good answer. Yeah. Amanda. A lot of what? Yeah, that's one of the things we talked about in the first lesson about how we can hit, know we can trust the Bible. And Lynn mentioned it last week, too, is fulfilled prophecy. You know, okay. Now, that still wouldn't give support to every detail in the Bible is still really accurate, but it would show that the essence of it certainly is because we see how it's been fulfilled. We got Pat and then Lynn, I think, has a comment. So that's a good point as far as the Old Testament is concerned. And our faith in Jesus, again, it's an issue of faith, which all this is is an issue of faith. You know, just like people that don't believe this. It's an issue of faith that they don't believe it. But the fact that as far as the Old Testament is concerned is that Jesus gave his full stamp of approval to the Old Testament as it was. Now, that's as it was then. That was 2,000 years ago. How do we know that in 2,000 years it wasn't coffee? So somebody could still raise that one. I'm just playing the devil's advocate here, and we'll take Lynn's comment, and then we're going to jump in because we could talk about this all night long. Go ahead, Lynn. What were you going to say? Yeah, that's very similar to Sharon's answer. If our faith is in God, then we have faith to believe that he would keep his word pure, okay? So 
I, I, yeah, we'll take Tim's comment too, then we're going to jump in. Go ahead, Tim. I forgot I saw your hand a minute ago. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Internal consistency. That was one of the uh, things that we talked about a couple uh, lessons ago about how we know we can trust God's word is the internal consistency. But that also adds support to the fact that through the years it also has been copied correctly because it still maintains an internal consistency. So let me jump into the notes that I have here. I wanted to get some feedback from you. These are great answers. Okay, But how can we be sure that the manuscripts were copied Accurately, How can we be sure that what we have is accurate to what was originally written? Number one, scribes were meticulous about copying accurately. Scribes were meticulous about copying accurately. Okay? Um, if we were entrusted with copying something significantly important, we'd be very, very careful. Okay? If we had had the opportunity to copy what we believed was God's word, we would be very, very careful. Careful, And there's probably any number of things that we could have chosen to do or tried to do to make sure that it was right. And we see that that is true. And what we know about those who are involved in copying Scripture through the years, that they were tremendously um, meticulous about how they copied. Um, Obviously, there were different people through thousands of years, different groups of people. But the scribes who worked together, and there are historical records of at least some of the groups of people and some of the things that they went through in copying Scripture. Um, Just a couple of them, and you can read articles. You can just do a search online. All these topics, you can do a search online and find some really good stuff. There were those that they would count the actual number of letters and words in a particular passage and on a particular page. Okay, And then after they got done copying it, they would go back and count them again and made sure they exactly lined up. And they would even count the number of letters on a line and put the same thing on the line. There were some that they uh, had the thing that you could not write any word from memory. In other words, if you looked and you saw this one word, you would go over, you'd write it, and you wouldn't just write the next word because you remembered it. You had to go back and look again to make sure that the next word was the words you were going to write. Um, there were some groups where if you made more than just a couple of mistakes on a page, you just started all over again. Okay, And I'm sure that they had proofreaders and all that kind of stuff, but they were very, very meticulous. Now, something that's really, really encouraging is there's these things called the Dead Sea Scrolls. Have you heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Okay. So basically what the Dead Sea Scrolls are is in the early 1950s, there was a shepherd boy in Israel that was watching his sheep, and he was throwing rocks into little holes in the cliff. And he threw a rock into a hole in the cliff, and he heard something break, like pottery. He went and investigated it, and he found a whole bunch of pottery jars, and people found out about it. Anyway, archaeologists came in, and they found thousands, in a number of cases, thousands of documents that had been sealed in pottery jars. Basically what it was was the library of a local community called Qumran, and it had been hidden away when the Romans came to conquer Israel because they thought that they would probably burn up their library. Okay, And so these things went all the way back to about the time of Jesus. Now, it was a library. It had a lot of different documents, but it had a lot of manuscripts of Old Testament books. Okay, I'll just give you one example. One of them, it has almost the entire scroll of the prophet Isaiah. This scroll was a thousand years older than 
any other scroll that had been discovered up to that time. And when they compared it with a scroll that was from a thousand years later, it was almost exactly identical. So it shows that within that thousand years, the people who had copied, that God had used to copy, you know, his word, had been very meticulous about making sure they copied it and they copied it right. Okay? The second thing on your note sheet here is this. There is an abundance of early manuscripts to base our translations on. We're talking about how can we know that the translation we have today, the, the Bible we have today, it's accurate to the original. Well, there's an abundance of early manuscripts to base our translations on. Let's talk about the Old Testament first of all. As far as the Old Testament is concerned, there's over 3,000 Hebrew manuscripts of the Old Testament. And not only uh, Hebrew manuscripts, but the very first time it was translated in any major fashion into another language was translated into Latin. And there's over 8,000 manuscripts of the Latin Vulgate. That's the name of the Latin translation. There's over 1,500 manuscripts of the Greek translation, which is called the Septuagint, which is the Bible that Jesus and the disciples probably used. And there are over 65 copies of, uh, uh, of, of the Old Testament that was translated into Syriac. It's called the Peshitta, okay? So all that's saying is that there's a ton, thousands and thousands and thousands of tremendously old manuscripts of the Old Testament in the original Hebrew, but in also in translations that were made early on. As far as the New Testament is concerned, there's more than 5,700 Greek New Testament manuscripts, ranging in date from the early 2nd century, which would be within about, um, um, about a, within 100 years of when the Bible was actually written, when the, when the New Testament was actually written, okay? Uh, 5,700 Greek New Testament manuscripts ranging in date from the early 2nd century to the 16th century, okay? It, like the Old Testament, was translated into other languages. And so there's copies of those, too, that are tremendously old. Uh, Latin, Coptic, Syriac, Armenian, Georgian, Gothic, and Arabic. So there are between 20,000 and 25,000 handwritten copies of the New Testament in various languages, The thing that's interesting is that even if all of those manuscripts were destroyed, scholars could still compile the text of the New Testament just based on quotations from the early church fathers, from sermons, from tracts, from commentaries that were written by ancient teachers of the church. They quoted scripture so much that even if all the original manuscripts were destroyed, they could reconstruct the whole Bible. You say, well, that thousands and thousands, that's, that's great, but is that enough? Well, when you compare that with manuscripts from other types of documents that all of history is based on, it's phenomenal. Okay? You know, what is our history based on? It's based on things that have been passed down, right? You know, some of the more popular, well-known, classical um, writers and, and documents are, you know, Julius Caesar was not just a leader of the Roman Empire, he was, an, he was an author. And his histories are very, very much dependent on for Roman history. There are some other Roman writers like Suetonius and Cicero, maybe you recognize some of those names, if you don't, don't worry about it, because I can't tell you anything more than other than their names. 
Okay. But some famous Greek writers and, 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 and Roman writers and Plato, you know, he's a great philosopher. So guess how many manuscripts there are of their original works? For most of them, less than 20. But yet, if you talk to modern historians, they don't have any problem thinking that, well, what we have is pretty much what they wrote down, even though they only have 20 manuscripts that are old, and we've got thousands and tens, uh, well, not tens of thousands from the New Testament, but, you know, tons and tons and tons of manuscripts for the Old Testament and the New Testament compared to an average of about 20 manuscripts. So the New Testament itself has over a thousand times as many manuscripts to give support to the fact that it's accurate than what most historians use to, uh, to base the history of the Roman Empire or the writings of Greek philosophers and that kind of stuff on. Okay, so if people want to throw out the accuracy of the Bible, especially the New Testament, based on the fact that, you know, copies could have crept in and corrupted, they could have thrown out basically all that we know of history. Because all that we know of history is based on even less evidence. Not only is it the number of manuscripts, but how old they were. Um, when we look at the New Testament, there's about 100 of these New Testament copies that are from before 400 A.D., That's approximately 300 to 350 years um, after they were written. There's one fragment that actually goes back to within about 30 to 35 years of when it was written. It's part of the Gospel of John, all right? We say 300, 350 years, that's the oldest we have. Well, again, if you talk about classical writers, they don't have anything closer than 500 um, years after it was written, and that's very, very few. So as I said, there are so much more evidence, and just not just volume, but earlier evidence to the manuscripts that are used that we we depend upon for our translations than there is for any other writings in the history of the world. Yeah, Vita. When they work on a new translation? Okay. All right. Um, Let me answer that very quickly, but we'll talk more about that when we talk about different types of translations. So the question is, if a Bible committee, say, um, formed by one of the Bible publishers says we're going to work on a new translation, what do they use? Because we've got all these thousands and thousands of manuscripts. Okay, well, through the years, Bible scholars uh, from all different backgrounds and stuff have taken these manuscripts and kind of basically put them all together. All right, And where they did not totally agree, which is the next point we're going to deal with, is where, what about where these manuscripts don't totally agree? Okay, um, They would determine, try to determine as best they could, which is the most likely to have been the original thing, and that's what they have there. But anything that isn't, it, 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 that is a little bit of a difference, they put that as a footnote. So Bible translators have to, available to them, and you can, I mean, anybody can buy a copy. I've got a copy, it's in a box in my garage, of both the uh, Greek New Testament and the Hebrew Old Testament that has that compilation and everything, and it'll tell you exactly what the manuscript is, and if there's a little bit of a difference in this place, it'll tell you exactly what that could be, and then that's what they work off of. So they work off of all the best manuscripts as they've been compiled together. That's the short answer. Okay, we can talk more about that in depth. So, all right. So, but that brings us to number three. Even in spite of all this um, effort to copy it as accurately as possible, and we've got tons and tons of manuscripts, and they go way back, there are still places where they don't totally agree because mistakes have crept in. All right. Number three, 
There are no variant issues with 99.5% of the text of the Bible. Okay? Whenever there's a place where one manuscript differs from a different manuscript, it's called a variant because they vary. Okay? And I'll give you some examples of that. It's not as serious as it sounds. It's not near as serious as people like to make it out to be. Okay? But... There are no variant issues at all with 99.5% of the text of the Bible. All right. Now, I'm going to give you a fact that is often stated, and it is true, and it sounds terrible, but it's not. And here's that fact. There are about 400,000 textual variants among the manuscripts. So, wait a minute, that sounds pretty overwhelming. There's 400,000 places where one manuscript may differ from another manuscript? That seems like that gives full support to the people that say, oh, man, it's just been corrupted and all that kind of stuff. Well, the reason there's so many is because there's so many manuscripts. And most all of them, not all of them, but most all of them are totally and completely insignificant differences. Things that very simply and very easily creep in anytime somebody's copying from one to another. Let me give you some examples, okay? Sometimes a variant might be just a confusion between two letters, okay? Uh, you, know, I, you know your own handwriting. I know my handwriting. When I'm writing really fast, my R's look like V's, okay? So if I was copying something and it had an R and I wrote too fast, it might would look like a V. That would be considered a variant, but if somebody's reading that, they can tell whether it's an R or a V. Yes. Okay. And the same thing is true. There's a, there's a bunch of variants that are just a simple thing of confusion between similar letters. Another one would be to leave a letter out. Have you ever written something? You go back and say, oh, wait a minute. I left something out. I, I sign four, five, six birthday cards or anniversary cards every week. Okay. If you've never gotten a birthday card or an anniversary card from me from the church, from me and my wife from the church, is because we don't have your information, because we try to send them out to everybody we have their information, okay? And there's times I'm riding along, and I'm trying to be really careful. I look and I say, oh, I spelled birthday without an R, and i got to kind of squeeze it in there. And some of you are going to go home, or when you get one, you're going to say, to see if you made any mistakes on there, okay? But as you, get, you, know, as you go along, you know, you could very easily leave out, you know, again, people aren't being as careful, but when people are texting and writing, how many times do you read something on social media that says, oh, it's just misspelled, you know, because they're typing fast, whatever, okay? And that can even happen when you're being very, very careful. But, you know, you can be reading and say, I know exactly what that word is, even though it's missing one of the letters, well, that would be considered a variant. But it's quite obvious what it's supposed to be. Sometimes a word can get left out. Have you ever done that? You've been writing something and you go back and say, oh, wait a minute, I left out this word. Every once in a while, that can happen. But you see, that's where the benefit of having thousands and thousands of manuscripts comes in because you compare the other manuscripts and you say, oh, well, this one is missing this word, but here's 30 other ones that have the word in there. It's obvious what it's supposed to be, right? Okay. Another example is maybe a misspelled word or a similar sounding word. Okay. Um, sometimes people would do the copying by they'd have one person up there reading and then the other ones would write down, you know. Or sometimes people may just get it. Uh, this is in English. It's not in Greek or Hebrew or whatever, but you have the word hair, okay? That can be H-A-I-R, this kind of hair, or it can be H-A-R-E, which means rabbit. If I wrote to you and said, I got up in the morning and combed my hair, 
and I wrote the wrong one down, I doubt you're going to think that I got up and ran a comb through my pet bunny's coat. Okay? You're going to know what I meant. But again, it's so obvious, but that would be considered a variant. All right? So, let me give you some more examples. Um, oh, by the way, we see this in, in social media all the time. When people will say there, and it can be spelled T-H-E-R-E or T-H-E-I-R or T-H-Y apostrophe R-E. Uh, I don't know if you're like me. That just bugs me. You read somebody and they use the wrong word. Or it's with or without the comma, you know, the apostrophe or whatever. Yeah, Carlton. Two, yeah. When you say two, when you use the word two, do you use it with one O or two O's? You know? That's right. That's right. Um, some other examples, okay, um, are similar words. Words that are spelled exactly the same except for one letter. And here's a humorous example that actually took place. First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, okay? Paul's writing, and he says, we were blank among you. And the word that is in there, okay, by the difference of one letter, can mean either gentle, you say we were gentle among you, which is what most translations say, or it could mean we were infants among you, which gives the same idea, that's why the word is so similar, or it could be we were horses among you. And there actually is one manuscript that says we were horses among you. But it's quite obvious by comparing with all the other manuscripts that that wasn't what the word was. They got one letter wrong. It was supposed to be gentle or children among you. Okay. Um, another one is that uh, in the Greek language, you can use what was their equivalent to the in front of any noun. Okay. We only use it in English under certain times, like say, uh, certain instances like the horse or the whatever. But I wouldn't say the John, your name. But in Greek, you can do that. It's meant for emphasis, okay? So I could say, the John went to the store or whatever. And there's a whole tons of places where sometimes the the is used and sometimes it's not. It means exactly the same thing, but that would be considered a variant. They also have a thing called a movable new, all right, which is sort of like when we use a before a word or an. What makes the difference between whether we use a or an? Whether the following word has a vowel at the beginning or not. Same thing in Greek. Sometimes it has the little new in it, and sometimes it doesn't. Again, it's quite obvious what it should be, but that's a little mistake that happens. Um, sometimes it's just a change of word order. We, in our in English language, um, word order is very, very important. You know, you usually have subject, verb, predicate, whatever. Okay, in Greek and in Hebrew to a degree, but in Greek especially, the word order is not important. Okay. Because it all comes down to the tense of the verb and the tense of the noun. The nouns has different uh, forms too, okay? And you could basically write a Greek sentence maybe 15 different ways and it'll mean exactly the same thing. And there are times that somebody was copying and you got the word order a little bit out of difference than the other thing they were copying, but it means exactly the same thing. So it's obvious what it means, all right? Sometimes, you know, a scribe would be going along, and for whatever reason, they ended up skipping a line. Again, it's so obvious. Something's missing. You compare it with all the other managers, but that's considered. So as you can see, such little teeny tiny things can be variants, but they're obvious. 99.5% of all variants are things like that, where you look at and say, oh, it's obvious what happened. It is obvious what happened? And so all you got to do is compare the manuscripts. I like to use this illustration. I've used it many, many times. 
is that if we decided, if you all decided to be a part of an experiment, okay, 10 of you volunteered to be part of an experiment. And the experiment was that this next week you were going to go home and you were going to sit down and you were going to hand write the letter of James. And we choose a particular, let's just say we choose the King James Version, okay? But 10 of you volunteered to go home. I'm not going to ask you to, so don't worry. To go home and copy the epistle of James from the King James Version. Be as careful as you can. How many of those 10 do you think would be perfect? Only one? You can say, who, who said only one? Was that going to be yours? You can say, mine would be? No. Chances are, none of the ten would be perfect. It, it could be. It could be. And more than one could be. But do you think if you took those ten without looking at the King James and you could find out exactly what James said from those ten? Sure you could. Because even if two people made the same mistake, they're probably not going to do it in the same place. But even if they did, you got the eight other ones that say, no, this is what it's supposed to be. And so that's why I'm saying because we have so many manuscripts. When there have been just a few little things that have crept in over the years, you compare it to all the other manuscripts. And it's very, very easy to see. It's so obvious to see. That's 99.5%. Okay. The next thing on your note sheet is this. Number four. The few texts where there are issues affect no area of doctrine. Okay? There are some of the things that have crept in. There are some of these things that are called variants that do change things a little bit, but it doesn't affect any area of doctrine. None whatsoever. Let me give you a couple of examples. There's some minor ones. All right? In Romans chapter 5, verse 1, there is one word... Okay, and there's quite a few manuscripts um, where it is this one word, and then there's quite a few manuscripts where it's a very similar word where one letter is different. Okay? And it means the difference between translating that, Paul's writing, he says, we have peace, or let us have peace. One of them's talking about that we have the peace from God. The other one is, peace of God's available to us, let's make sure that we have it in our lives. Does that affect any area of document, doctrine? No. Does it change any major belief? No. In fact, they're even very similar in meaning. Okay? But that's why if you read some translations, some will have, say something like, we have peace, where others might say, let us have peace. Because there's one word in there that in some manuscripts, it's we have peace. Another one, that one letter is different, and it is let us have peace. Okay? There's some medium ones. When I say medium, okay? The ending of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. Beginning of this year, you know, we did a whole study on um, the Lord's Prayer and how we not only pray it, but how we live it, okay? And um, we would read it at the beginning of every single lesson. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. All the way through. And then you get to the very end where it says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Depending on what translation you have, some translations, it stops there. And it has a footnote. Other translations has what we know from the ending of it. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. And for the ones that stop right there, and has a footnote, it says some manuscripts have, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. What does that mean? That means we have a great bunch of manuscripts that has that phrase in it, and we have a great bunch of manuscripts that doesn't have that phrase in it, which was original. 
They don't know for sure. But there seems to be more evidence that it wasn't in the original. It got added somewhere along the way, and that's why it's in the footnote. Okay? But whether it was or not, does that change any area of doctrine? No. Every bit of that is, goes right along with what God's word says. So, and that's a, a, you know, a pretty major one, but that's, that's the essence of uh, the significance of it. Yeah, Vita. The KJV, which is what? KJV, which most of us grew up on. Yes, because mm-hmm. right. it was the only one for a long time. Well, anything that's not like you're used to is going to sound different, yeah. Right. Well, that's basically the question that was asked last time. But, you know, there are people that are just the opposite. People that have not grown up on the King James Version, they've grown up on a different translation, they go back and try to read the King James, it can be very confusing to them. Yeah. Let me give you a couple more examples, okay? When I said, you know, you've got the minor ones, you've got the medium ones. Um, a good example is in Mark 9.29. It's the end of the story where Jesus cast the demon out of the little boy after his disciples were not able to cast it out, which is actually what I'm going to be preaching on Sunday, but out of Luke. But in Mark, um, it has Jesus say this, you know, when they ask, why couldn't we do this? And, um, and Jesus says, well, this kind only comes out through prayer. And somebody said, and fasting, right? Well, in some translations, it has that, and prayer, and that's where it stops. And some say, and prayer, and fasting. But when it stops with and prayer, there's a footnote at the bottom, and what it says is some manuscripts have and fasting, but it seems to be that the most accurate manuscripts and the oldest manuscripts do not have the and fasting, that somewhere along the way, a scribe had added that in, okay? And then it became copied and all that kind of stuff, all right? So, again, does that change any doctrine? No. Does that mean that fasting is not important? No, the Bible talks about the importance of fasting for everything, all right? So it doesn't change anything in doctrine. There are only two major textual variance in the whole New Testament, okay? And we're not going to dig deeply into it, okay? I'm not even prepared to do so. But if you read the end of Mark, okay, Mark chapter 16, verses 9 to 20, most Bibles, it has brackets around it. And it says this passage is not found in a great majority of manuscripts, but it is found in some, so it's included. That is a pretty big one, obviously, all right? The other one is in John 5, verse 53, through 8, 11, and it's the whole story of the woman caught in adultery. Again, in many translations, they have brackets around and say, this story is not found in a lot of manuscripts, but it's still in there because a big major portion of Scripture. But the thing is, is that if that wasn't included in the Bible, does that change any doctrine at all? Does the inclusion of it change any doctrine at all? No, not at all. And those are the only two that are any major Significance, And if that stirs your interest, you can do all kinds of research about that on your own. All right? The thing is that um, these, this issue of these variants, you know, sometimes people say, well, people are trying to hide things from us, and people have taken stuff out of the Bible. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've seen this thing. It comes around every once in a while on Facebook or some other social media or emails. It says, you know, these new translations take verses out of the Bible. No, they don't. They don't. When there are things that are not there that you may be used to, okay, a lot of times it comes down from the King James Version. It's something that's in the King James Version. 
And there's only a couple little things like that. Okay, and it's not in some of the more modern translations. It's because when the King James Version was translated, and please understand, I've said this many times, the King James Version is a great translation. I am not anti-King James Version, okay? But it's translated in 1611, the original King James, okay? They used the best manuscripts they had. But since 1611, they have discovered so many more thousands of manuscripts that are older than the ones that were used for the King James Version and are in better shape and everything, and some of these phrases are not in the older ones, but they were in the ones that were translated from the King James. And that's why the King James would have something like the end of Mark, uh, that verse in Mark where it says, these kind only come out through prayer and fasting because the, 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 the manuscripts the King James uh, translators used, it had that in there. But since then, so many more have been discovered that are older, closer to the original, that don't have that in there. Okay, So these newer translations are not taking verses or part of verses out of the Bible. They're just making their translations from the, what seem to be the very most accurate transla- uh, the very most accurate manuscripts that are available today, okay? And besides that, they're not trying to hide anything. I brought this to, to, to uh, give an, uh, a couple of uh, examples, okay? If you have any um, modern translation um, that's actually a translation, not a paraphrase or whatever, Okay, um, you guys know that I like to preach and teach from the ESV, the English Standard Version. It's to me, in all the research I've done, it's one of the most accurate translations there is of the Bible, and the most literal to the original meaning and everything. But whenever there is a variant that makes any kind of a difference at all, they put a footnote in there. Okay, and so today I thought I'm just going to bring some examples to you. So I just took my Bible off the shelf because I read, teach, preach, and study from it on here, and it's on here too, but I just started paging through the New Testament epistles, okay, and I looked at the footnotes at the bottom, and I just chose three at random that talk about some of these differences, okay, so the first one I chose here is 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, Paul says, and this is the English Standard Version. It says, That is why I sent, to you, I sent you Timothy, my beloved, and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Next to Christ, there's a little footnote. It says three. I look at the bottom, and it says some manuscripts add Jesus. What does that mean? It means that most manuscripts, especially the older and more trustworthy Have it exactly the way this is translated. That's why I sent to you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. But there are some later manuscripts that say, in Christ Jesus. Does that make a difference in theology? Does that make any difference in doctrine? No. And it's very easy to see how that could have been added in. Somebody's writing along saying, because of Jesus Christ. I'm used to referring to Jesus. And Paul constantly talks about Jesus Christ in so many other places. But in that particular place, okay, um, most of the manuscripts do not have Jesus, but some do. So they put it in a footnote. Again, nobody's trying to hide anything. Let me give you two other examples. Another one I came across just paging through. And I encourage you to go home, and, and if you have a Bible that has footnotes, okay, um, you'll see these kind of things, all right? Um, here we go. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15, and it's talking about how if a believer is married to an unbeliever, 
Um, you shouldn't seek to get a divorce unless the unbeliever chooses to leave the relationship. In verse 15, it says, But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Okay? Next to the you, God has called you to peace is a little footnote. At the bottom, it says, some manuscripts say us. In Greek, the word for you and the word for us almost exactly the same. There's a lot of places in the New Testament where it could be you or us, you or us, you or us. So, the majority of the manuscripts say, but if the unbeliever partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. But some translations would say, or some manuscripts would have a thing that says, God has called us to peace. Is there any significant difference in that besides the use of a different pronoun? God has called you to peace. God has called us to peace. It's the exact same truth. And that's the way a lot of these variants are. One more. And by the way, we're not going to try to get into science, archaeology, and all that history tonight. Okay, I had a feeling we'd only deal with this one topic, okay? Because I also want to open it up to some questions if you have any. All right. First uh, Timothy chapter 6, verse 7. Paul says, again, ESV, For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. You've heard that phrase, that, that statement, right? All right. There's a footnote in mine after the and. And in the footnote it says, Some manuscripts insert, it is certain that. So some manuscripts say not just, For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. But they say, for we brought nothing into the world, and it's certain that we cannot take anything out of the world. That little phrase was put in some manuscripts. But again, it affects no doctrine. It makes no difference in the meaning of the text. And so all that to say this. We can have tremendous confidence that the Bibles that we have printed, the translations that we have printed are, I don't know how best to word it, other than almost exactly as the originals. The few little tiny things that may have crept in over the years are so minor. 99.5 of them, it's obvious exactly what's happened. And the other ones, they're not even that significant. And none of them, absolutely none of them affect any kind of doctrine at all. So, Pat. Romans 8, 1, sure. Uh-huh. Yeah. And that leads back to some of the questions we've had about, well, can some of the translations cause confusion because you're used to one translation, you read it another one. It's like, why is it that way? Blah, 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 blah. Okay. So I have not looked at this up to before this. So, Okay. Uh, chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Period. That's what the ESV has. That's what many modern translations have. Okay? But there's a footnote there. And in the footnote it says, Some manuscripts add, Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now that's a long one. That's not just a little one word thing. Say, well, how in the world could it be that big of a difference in a manuscript? Well, a lot of times it's because these people spend their whole lives copying God's word. And that particular phrase is in other places in the New Testament. 
Okay, and especially when Paul's talking about walking in the flesh and walking, or, or I'm sorry, for being in Christ Jesus, and you know, in Romans in particular, that same book, he talks a lot about walking in the flesh or walking in the spirit, all that kind of stuff. It'd be very, very easy to for that to kind of slip in there. All right, but the point being is that. Most of the manuscripts, most of the older and more reliable manuscripts do not have that phrase, but there is a whole grouping of manuscripts that do, that are old, that are closer in time, and therefore it's included in some translations and it is put in the footnote. Like I said, nobody's trying to hide anything. Okay? Any other questions or comments? Yeah, Vita. Which, which translation? NLT? New Living Translation. Mm hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yes, some footnotes are done by asterisk rather than a number. I have numbers in this one. Yeah. Lynn, what were you going to say? Okay. Oh, they're constantly finding more manuscripts, yeah, over time. Well, the Bible is already accurate. You know, we won't know till we get to heaven what the original, 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 original said. And that's a very good question. Why do we make more translations and new translations? And we'll deal with that in more depth when we talk about the translations. But there's a couple of reasons. Number one, because we are getting better and better and better manuscripts that are more accurate than the older ones. But the second reason is the fact that language changes. People's understanding of language changes. Most of us in this room could ring the King James Version, although none of us... I shouldn't say none of us. Very few of us could read the 1611 King James Version and understand it. Okay? You know, a lot of times people read and say, well, King James, that's the only one. And I, again, please don't understand. King James Version is a great translation. I'm not down in King James. But the original King James Version Bible, if you were to read it, you would not understand it. It has been changed over and over and over again to update the language. Okay? All right. But... Um, there are a lot of people that if they were to read even a modern version of the King James language, uh, King James Version, would have a hard time understanding a lot of it because it just isn't the way we use language today. Yeah, Vita? Okay. Yes, and, and we, we will deal with that when we, we need to spend a night talking about translations and answer more questions. You mentioned the Message Bible. The Message is not a translation. The Message is a paraphrase which wasn't a team of Bible scholars that sat down and translated from the original. It was one man, a very godly man, a man who loved the Lord, who was a pastor, who never set out to do another translation. He sat down to try to write the Bible in a way that he felt like his people could understand better, and it became so popular they published it. Okay, But it's his thing of reading the Bible and how would I put this in modern language. Okay, It's become very popular, but it is not a translation. It is a paraphrase, and there's a difference Translations go back to the original language and translate what does it say in the original language and how do we best express that in our language. Whereas a paraphrase is, okay, let me take a look at the Bible. And sometimes they do refer to the original because the guy that did the message is a guy by, I think it was Eugene Peterson. He knows the original languages, okay, so he consulted them. But basically is how can I just word this in a way that people would understand and idioms that they would understand, but it's not an actual translation. So we'll talk about that some more when we talk about translations. So we're going to have to wrap this up. Excuse me, but we will dig more deeply into this in the translations, all right? But let me just reaffirm. Okay, Chris, you've had your hand up forever, so I'll go ahead and make, let you make a comment, then we're going to finish. Go ahead. You asked for comments, and I 
<laughs> okay. All right. All right. Yeah, that shepherd boy wasn't throwing a rock at a cave, though. He was throwing it at the giants. So anyway. So the, to summarize, though, everything we've been talking about here, the claim that we can't really know that we really have the word of God as it was originally written because it's been corrupted through the years is absolutely 100% false in any significant way. Okay. All right, 99.5% of every word in the God's word, we can be assured is exactly as it was from the very beginning, and the few little tiny things are so insignificant, are so obvious, okay? And even the couple, very small ones, where it's like, why do we have these manuscripts that say this, and this has a little bit different, little different word, little different phrase? It does not change anything about the teaching of God's word. So, Father, thank you for the time that we've had to look at your word tonight. And God, I just pray that it would give us continued confidence in your word and your ability not only to inspire men to write it down so that we have your words, but that for your ability to keep it throughout history, Lord God, so we can have confidence in what we have before us. Lord, we give you the glory and the honor in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed listening to today's message or Bible study. For more information, please contact us at area code 352-347-3001 or visit us online. If you are interested in supporting this ministry, go to our website and click on the online giving tab. Our website address is www.marionoaksag.org. 